Here we are again. It's episode 12 of Beef Station. Welcome aboard on our endless voyage through the stars. Here with you again is Andrew and Oscar. <laughs> you stole my bit. <laughs> to be honest, I said your name. I was like, fuck, that's not me. What do I do? Do I let him say my name? Oh, this oh, is no. so good. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Maybe it's because we're both, or not both, one of us is at least a little bit dusty from last week's episode. <laughs> my God. I feel like I've disgraced the Beef Station name boy. I must apologize That's for my conduct last week. Week-long hangovers are a real killer. <laughs> um, how you doing? Yeah, good. This week, we're tackling our first ever listener request yes, episode. Important milestone. Uh, yeah. Listener Callum We were and... forced to listen to you fuckwits. <laughs> the voices of the masses have spoken and we cannot ignore them for any longer. <laughs> We are but humble servants to our listening public, <laughs> of which there are about 11. Without you, um, we are nothing. Listeners Callum and Hammy have both requested that we cover In Bruges this week, yeah. which is a film made in 2008 by Martin McDonough. Mm-hmm. And we thought to balance that out, maybe balance is the wrong word, we would do three billboards. Compliment. Compliment. Ah, we, we would do that. We would also discuss three billboards, Here's which is a fact. Martin McDonough film that was released last year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My fun fact is that I am 24 and <laughs> I learned last week that compliment and compliment are totally different words and mean different things. That's well, because they're both incorrect pronunciations of compliment. Yeah. But there are two compliments and they function in different ways. Oh. So, yeah. In there British and, uh, and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, if you want to know what those... Yeah, sorry. I think I've always called it Three Billboards from... Yeah, the full name is Outside Ebbing, Missouri, with three billboards up front. (laughs) (laughs) Awful. (laughs) Um, I used to work in a cinema, as did you, of course, and with those big, long movie names... Mm. You'd like immediately nickname them straight away. Yeah. So like, I think everyone, all the public, and everything, members of the public, would be like, "Can I get two tickets to three billboards outside Nashville?" And you'd be like, oh, and then, like everyone would yeah. always fuck it up. We used to have um, a film that was. <laughs> Can out- I get a ticket to three billboards outside Portland, Oregon, please? <laughs> <laughs> three billboards outside Washington D.C. Thank you. <laughs> Um, we <laughs> we used to have um, there was some film we were showing called like The Reluctant Fundamentalist. And um, <laughs> I think we said that's good shit. So many different mispronunciations. That the best one was like, "Can I get one to uh, the <laughs> tentative constitutionalist, please?" <laughs> we had like, like, can I get two tickets to the ignorant terrorist, please? I think like worse. The reluctant terrorist. Yeah. Excellent plot. <laughs> Oh, gosh, I'm really not sure about this. <laughs> Is this going to hurt? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We're getting dangerously yeah, close. Let's steer right yes. away. <laughs> right, so, in Bruges and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Had you seen both of these films before? I had seen In Bruges. Right. Um, because... Because uh, <laughs> it's been up for like 10 years. No, because I had gone to Bruges. Oh, right. So no, of course you have. I've yeah. actually been there. Yeah motherfuckers more on that later but i'd seen that one before i had missed three billboards in cinemas so i went back and watched it glad i did yeah Mm. Um, another little plug for a little itunes rental service two dollars this week to yeah it was on special miraculous Ah, we're making money absolutely fantastic (laughs) we could kick it off by discussing in bruges i think maybe chronologically so this is a film i think it was martin mcdonald's first 
uh, feature-length film mm. he released, written and directed by him, and released in 2008. It stars Brendan Gleeson and oh, Colin Farrell. Yep, well done for not fucking that up for about the sixth <laughs> time that you've been talking I think about. Pre-show, Colin Firth. Colin Firth. I've called Colin him Colin Firth, Firth Colin about Farrell. four Colin times. Firth. Colin Farrell. <laughs> Nailed it first time. <laughs> Let's get a clean go of that. All Farrell, the dress Colin Farrell. Every dress rehearsal, it was it was the, the sticking point. But then he's bloody ripper. He's nailed it. I'm a media professional. How dare you libel me? <laughs> um, so Colin Farrell <laughs> and Brendan Gleeson play hitmen who have just fucked up a, a job and have been sent to sort of lie low, sort of in hiding mm. in the Belgian town of Bruges. Brendan Gleeson plays this hitman who's like a seasoned professional. Brendan Gleeson, by the way, one of those uh, actors that you know them, but you don't know what they're called. Most of you have probably seen him as Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter films. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was him. He So he plays like a seasoned professional hitman who's kind of the partner to Colin Farrell, who is pretty new and has actually just come from fucking up his first job in a pretty tragic way. Sort of killed someone who he didn't intend to kill instead. And so the bosses sort of sent them in disgrace to Bruges to sort of hide out and lie low. Yeah. And that's where the film kind of kicks off is with them arriving in Bruges. And a lot of the film kind of deals, and I think Three Billboards does as well, with sort of moral ambiguity mm. and explorations of human morality in that way. But it's, it's a drama and a comedy. Mm. But I think that it, if you're not in the right mood, it can definitely feel like more of a tragedy. And this is one of those comedy. movies where like, if people don't enjoy it, you talk to them about why, and they're just like, oh, nothing fucking happens. <laughs> like the whole film, just nothing happens. It's just like boring people talking. And so... Well, I, th- like, I think the dialogue is one of the strongest it's, bits. It's such... It's like some of... It's so dark comedy. Like it's it's black yeah. comedy in its, in its kind of like purest essence. Yeah. So um, some people I think uh, feel like that's a bit droll. Yeah. And like the pacing can feel quite slow, but it's just really taking its time to... I disagree. To I don't up. think the pacing... I, I, I don't think the pacing feels. I don't agree very with that. Slow. I'm just saying that some people have expressed that. <laughs> the straw man. Yeah, that's right. Ten minutes into the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I'm some just. Idiots. I'm just asking questions, man. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> and what about? Oh. <laughs> so it opens up with these sort of slow landscapey kind of establishing shots of Bruges, which yep. is the small. It's, it's this small town in Belgium, and Fucking it's apparent. Tiny. Beautiful. I mean, you, you'd probably speak better to it because you've actually been there, but it's one of the best preserved medieval towns in all of Europe. I think yep. some of the buildings date back to like the 12th century. Yeah, yeah. And so it's these old money. Shots of these film, shots of this film sort of show like all these gothic churches and gargoyles and well, terraced houses and things one through of this the, old um, town. Because like it's it's this film has a weird relationship with the city that it's based in. Or yeah. Town, because it it's... Hi- most movies aren't hyper aware of the place that they're based in, but this whole the whole point of this film is Bruges as a city. Um, you <laughs> know, say, is that it's in Bruges? Well, yeah, you know, but yeah. like what Bruges as a city is like, and he's... it's like a character in the film, exactly, but in yeah. the most definable way. Yeah, one of the things that's um, really interesting about Bruges is that it's it's a very kind of like small, generally flat really old European city, but then in the middle of it, it has this enormous uh, church tower. Yeah. um, Or clock tower? Bell tower. Whatever. (laughs) There's a tower. It's a tower. Its function is at this point unknown. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We cannot comment on the function of the tower. (laughs) 
Um, however, there is a tower. We can confirm that there is a tower in Bruges. Um, it's right in the middle of the city, and it's like in the, it overlooks the town square. Yeah. And it's the thing that you go and see while you're in Bruges. Yeah. And um, it, it's funny, like even going there in real life, that's the, true. The thing, it's like yeah. you go and the, like one of the only things that you can actually do. Like there's a couple of windmills, and then <laughs> there's a tower. Yeah. You know. So yeah, it was interesting seeing the the film kind of really focus on that even though it's sort of a niche touristy approach that you would i mean like you watch the film and you're like oh okay i guess they're telling me about this but it's weird to know that that's actually also commenting on what it's like to really go to that place well yeah like if I another mean, film was based in denmark you wouldn't really think that the film would focus on what it's like to go to denmark as a tourist but yeah it should be like a nice setting exactly well, so but this one Mark, really does martin mcdonough actually said in some interview for this that he got the whole idea for this film in sort of all in one go when he was on holiday in Europe and went to Bruges, and he'd never been. That's there a hell of a fucking idea to get all in one go. This this, he, this film goes a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> so he went there and he said he had this whole fucking idea, and he said like, "Oh, I hope I can write this and release it before someone else thinks of writing a, writing a movie set in Bruges because it's such a great place to shoot a film, kind of thing." Um, and he said that if he hadn't been allowed to shoot the movie in Bruges, he just would have scrapped the whole idea for the film. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he said like, interesting. In his in his opinion. He didn't think the film would have worked as well if it was in Prague or in yeah, some right. little town. Which I, I mean, how many fucking yeah, old towns? Must I don't think that I kind of disagree. From an yeah, exactly. But yeah, but fair enough. For him personally, like it being shot and being set in Bruges was mm. really important. Um, and so I feel like in a lot of like you know, there's like New York kind of set films. Where you're like, oh, New York is like a real character. And you're like, no, it's not. But in this film, yeah, like the yeah. whole film centers around the characters' relationships with this small town. So like. Mm. The boss who sends them there, for example, has this sort of romanticized memory of what his holiday was like in Bruges, and he sort of sends it sends them there as this nice little place to go mm. on a week, little week getaway kind of thing. Brendan Gleeson's character Ken really enjoys the culture and the history and the art, and is really sort of intellectually stimulated by the whole place. Mm. And Ray, Colin Farrell's character, just has none of it. And it's just bored the whole time. Yeah, just can't wait to get out of it. It's like, oh, yep. can't we, can't believe I'm fuck, stuck in fucking Bruges. And so, I think in that sense, it really is. A tangible, it plays a tangible role in the film, in yeah. for the purposes of driving driving the story forward, and also driving the characterization of of all of the different characters. Like yeah. you know, like um, Colin Farrell's character is the young one who fucked up and yeah. is there as a result, and so he's also the one who's kind of impatient and can't see the bigger picture. Like it's he's it's it's kind of they use the town to like springboard off and show you his naivety. Yeah, and um. Brendan Gleason. Gleason's character. <laughs> I was getting there. Um, if we say any other Colin or Brendan for the rest of the podcast, we mean two. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleason. You can't be like, oh, Colin Farrell's in this as well. No. So now I can just <laughs> get it wrong every time. That's good. Good strat. So his character is kind of like more wise, and is just like, would you just shut the fucking? I'd, I'd appreciate the town for what it is. Like you really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, as I said before, it's it's used very cleverly for, for characterization, I feel. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the characterization um, of the various people in the film is one of the most important features of the film. Mm. Um, because it seems like Martin McDonough really likes dealing with morality in his films and dealing with sort of moral ambiguity and having these characters which feel really human because of the ways in which they're flawed. And so... It seems like almost every single character in the whole film has a, some some sort of twisted interpretation or lack of morality. He does do like a very uh, 
he does very morally ambiguous characters. Yeah. They're all kind of there's no set um you know like Well so Ken is this like hardened professional killer. Um Yeah, for, Ray... for starters we're dealing of with a with a moral spectrum that is pretty much entirely contained within Hitmen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, like it's funny the... to to have that be that's the foundation. The foundation yeah. is that they're all trained killers. The beautiful funny smart woman that Ray meets and sort of goes on a few dates with. Mm. It's like a drug dealer yeah. who robs tourists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like there's this dwarf actor who is in in Bruges because in, within the context of the film there is a, another film being shot while these hit. Yeah, it's like a frame narrative, yeah. And these um this dwarf is like this cocaine addicted Peter Dinklage, dwarf. By the it's way. not Peter Dinklage. <laughs> it's like the other dwarf actor. I remember going but going into it watching it and what? he gets up there and you're like, that's not Peter Dinklage. <laughs> Who the fuck is that? But no, it's not. It's like some other fucking um like Oh, Peter Dinklage was actor. in Seven Psychopaths. Yeah, which and is he was also in Three Billboards, which is why yes, it's probably yeah, fucking okay, with you. Right, right, you're, right. you're gonna have to trust me, it's not him. Yep, okay, I believe you. Um because I did the same thing. I watched it with my buddy. It was like, oh, wait till you see Peter Dingsledge and it comes on. You're like, what? Oh, <laughs> it feels like that Bear Stain Bears, Bear Stain Bears <laughs> yeah. thing. Um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, so, so all the characters are like tragically flawed. Also, in some side way. note, we're not touching on Seven Psychopaths, but that no. is also a great film by Martin McDonough. Martin McDonough that you guys should go on. Josh, if you're out there listening, I'm fantastic. pretty sure you haven't seen it. You'd love it. Go go watch Seven Psychopaths. Uh, yeah, anyone that... <laughs> If you watch any of these three, because like uh, uh, his his films are all quite similar in tone, I feel. So kind of if like you very enjoy dark and dealing with these very ethically problematic themes mm. in a funny way, yeah, um, I think they're equally good. I think you were saying that yeah. you enjoy Three Billboards a lot more. I, I think did. these films are equally equally good and similar representations of this guy's style. Okay, interesting. I think that perhaps from an action point of view, Three Billboards probably has a lot more beats to it in terms of like actual things that happen in the story. I feel Whereas like. In Bruges, is more of like just like an emotional journey for two characters over the course of the film. But, so I guess yeah. following, we haven't really explored In Bruges as much as I feel like we possibly should before we introduce uh, no, three builders. I've got a bit more in it, yeah. Okay, cool. All I was going to say is is that um, I, I feel like in terms of a comparison point, Three Billboards is um, much more heavily focused on realistic moral ambiguity and characterization, whereas In Bruges is more of a thought experiment about... And it's um, a bit more comic. It's symbolistic. Um, it, you know, like, Bruges, as well as being, like, a character in the story and it, it's something that has an effect on the other characters, it's also used as a kind of, like, metaphor for purgatory. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I don't so, know, have you got any stuff on this we were talking about? Well, yeah, so, so a lot of the film focuses on... So, um, Colin Firth's character, Ray... I think we can probably say it's it's within the first half an hour of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was sent on his first ever hitman job, and he was supposed to murder this Catholic priest. Yep. And he accidentally also shoots and kills like a five-year-old child. Yep. And he is sort of emotionally crippled with guilt. Mm. And so as he is sent to Bruges, he's surrounded by all these, you know, huge historical monuments and buildings that are sort of a constant reminder and a lingering eyesore about history. And Bruges and like per- like 1200s permanence. Europe, so it's got a yeah. lot of that Catholic uh, architecture. Very sort of scary, gothic kind of style yeah. to everything. Maybe not gothic, but you know what I mean. Um, Maybe. There's this whole scene where they go into an art gallery and Ken... Brendan Gleeson's character is sort of really enjoying the culture, but all Ray can see and it focuses on are these these three main paintings 
that focus on justice and moral redemption in sick ways. Yeah. It's like, like this like painting that was, I think painted in like the 1500s or something that um, de- depicts like a dude getting flayed and skinned because he's a bride. He's like yeah. some judge that was accepted a bribe. There's another painting called The Death of the Miser, which shows like a priest reaching out to this skeleton. And the third painting that he's sort of staring at and sort of solemnly dwelling on is this painting called The Last Judgment by Hieronymus Bosch, which is kind of almost this like psychedelic depiction of I do not know the term for it, but you'll probably know what I'm talking about when I say it's like um, one of those surrealistic paintings where like the scale is off. It's depicting huge swaths of land with millions of people in it and... Yeah. So it's like all it's it's like this sort of barren land on the last day of like the apocalypse. Yeah. And there's all these like deformed skeletons and creatures and mm. sort of humans in pain and agony all over the place and all these like monsters and things. And it's very kind of macabre and nightmarish. What's that painting that uh Leonardo the Mona DiCaprio Lisa. used at the start of <laughs> Zing. Uh, no, the painting that Leonardo DiCaprio uses at the start of the climate change documentary that he did. I haven't seen that. I wouldn't know. Okay. Well, for anyone out there that's seen that, um, that painting at the start sort of reminded me of this one. <laughs> End of the story. Now we can get back to it. But it's, it's a very nightmarish kind of... Yeah, it's de- it's a depiction of like the apocalypse. Kind of film. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so, so this, this film in a way, is really kind of a depiction of these two hitmen in their own purgatory because mm. they've literally been sent by their boss to sort of hide out and await judgment in Bruges. Yeah. Oh, something else that's cool yeah. about... Th- this th- This movie does this a lot, and we won't get time to talk about all of the ways that it does this, but yeah. it's one of those movies where the more that you look for shit, the more that you find shit that... Um, Martin McDonald's done yeah. to be consistently thematically including symbolism. So like yeah. that painting is is focused on by a character and it has three concise elements, right? So there's the the three different Me. sections of the painting. Yeah. The film is also divided into three segments. One of those very rare films that adopts a three act structure, isn't no, it? No, <laughs> but I mean he really like you actually see he overlays text saying like scene one, scene two and scene three. Does he? In the film, I think. Okay, no, sure. I'm pretty sure. Sure. I mean, yeah. Um, it's I, been I think a while, that's but... just an ana- little analysis video we were watching before. Oh, yeah. I thought he did. Okay, well, if Whatever you're looking at the um, if you're looking at the cover art <laughs> of the film, <laughs> the poster at least is divided. The into poster three. is divided into three separate sections. There's Ray Fiennes, um, there's Colin Farrell, and then there's Brendan Favola. That's not the <laughs> it's name. Not at all. <laughs> Brendan. Brendan. Brendan Gleeson. Fuck you. (laughs) Um, There's the three major figures in the film and they're all split vertically down the page. So um, he's clearly, which is the same structure as the painting has. So what he's doing is he's echoing this like um, judgment, judged, and I guess like um, a kind of third character that I couldn't really think of as a ball. Judge the jury and the executioner. Yeah, nice, mate. Well, that's probably Which actually might literally, to be literally what it is. yeah, <laughs> yeah, at different points. But um, there's a little sizzle for actual plot elements there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he's taken he he takes these kind of like symbolic devices, and, and I think what's something really interesting that that Martin McDonough does is that he he will have characters in the movie look at those symbolic devices and talk about them yeah. as they're being used as a symbolic device in the film. Yeah. So he's kind of got that like really meta discourse going on. Yeah, um, but the way that he does it is is very clever. Well, yeah, so. absolutely. And um, so I th- I think one of the main one of the main themes in this film then is kind of moral redemption. Yeah. And 
and that kind of thing. And you really, you really get that sense from all the things that kept retribution and punishment and all those mm. sorts of themes judgment go out through the film judgment yeah. and that's something that Colin Farrell's character is con- constantly reminded of yeah, the whole yeah, way yeah. through For and sure. he's constantly dwelling on it um I, I think it's a really interesting part of the film. And it makes for a really great comedy. I yeah, think, and even it has like, some real substance. To even it. when he ends up killing the kid, it's like he's he's killing the the priest in a confession booth, so he yeah. doesn't see the kid there. He just fires bullets, and then it, he walks out, and the kid's been shot. Yeah, and like the the child is the only other person in the whole church, and he just happened to be sitting right there. Yeah, um, like it's very comical almost it's it's very surrealist yeah in the way that it represents it it's like that child is obviously strongly metaphorical for like what whether or not his actions had unintended consequences or whether or not um it was appropriate for him to make the choice to do that or yeah and so that comes back to um that idea of a twisted sense of morality because on the one hand he deliberately chose to be a, a contract like killer yeah and then he went out deliberately to kill a guy. And then as soon as he accidentally kills a kid, like, that's his step too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, for some people, they'd be like, oh, my God, I killed anyone. And he's like, oh, I killed a kid. Like, fuck that other guy. F- fuck that priest I killed. That was the job that I was doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, like, killing the kid is my step too mm. far. He's almost, like, he's taken the whole moral spectrum. But yeah. what he's done is is take a tiny little, like, scalpel slice yeah. out of that where it's, like, <laughs> like two, zoom, two hitmen and, like, zoomed it right in and yeah. being like, right, so this hitman is okay <laughs> with doing this not this yeah this hitman is okay with doing this but not this and then he talks about um so ray fine's character is is sort of this um representation of uh rigid unwavering morality and principles yeah Yeah, but but not necessarily um fit for purpose just systemically consistent yeah um and he talks a lot about like his his specific moral code and how proud he is and how specifically he adheres to it Mm. and I think that we were watching some analysis video that was talking about how they find it interesting that in Martin McDonough's films, it seems like the characters that have the most rigid sense of morality are often the most villainous or cruel ones. And also, yeah, he did say also the ones that really like to clearly articulate their point of view the most. So, yeah, which, yeah. I, which I think makes it so, interesting. That it's that sort of terrorist human thing where like the characters that have the most... The loosest understanding of their own morality and are sort of figuring out as they go. The mm. characters that are the most a- morally ambiguous are the ones that are the most human and yeah. the most yeah. likable, yeah. almost. Because you see, the most relatable just, for yeah, sure. Exactly. Ra- just, Ray it, Fiennes, including in in appearance, um, just in general, he's mm. a weird fucking looking. Oh, guy. weird looking guy. <laughs> but um, he is the uh, he's he almost comes across as inhuman. Yeah. In the way that he speaks and in his ideas and just in his behavior in general. It's like yeah. he's not he doesn't come across as a real character. He comes across as a filmic character. Exactly. And even in this film where everyone is like a caricature of themselves yeah. and it's this very black comedy that you said is kind of very surreal in the way it's mm. like, you know, you get this like cocaine addicted dwarf talking about a race war. Yeah. And somehow like that's more believable yeah. than just some guy who's just being very rigid with his morality. And I think that I mean in Three Billboards and in, in Bruges, there are definitely several characters who like on paper if you describe what they're doing like are reprehensible but somehow they're kind of likable yeah so I think that was a that's a really good point to segue into into three billboards yeah Um, so just for I guess a bit of a a plot summary um, there is a mother um, so there's this town in Ebbing, Missouri (laughs) (laughs) no the town is Ebbing (laughs) 
And then it flows yeah. back, and then it's called Ebbing, Missouri. Three little billboards. So, yeah. Um, Mildred Hayes is the name of the, the mother who is a protagonist. Um, she's played by Frances McDormand, who I'll just put it right up front. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, she won an Oscar for her performance. And definitely deserved it. Yeah. Um, so, every, everyone, in, uh, everyone in this film is fantastic. I think... Certainly in Bruges was good, but honestly, one of the strongest aspects of Three Billboards is its casting. So yeah, yes, absolutely. Congratulations to Frances McDormand. Um, she's absolutely fantastic and is should alone be a good enough reason to watch this movie. Yeah. But um, she, uh, her daughter was, uh, this is not a spoiler, but her daughter was raped and murdered before the start of the film. And uh, it's been seven months and nothing has been... Uh, no significant action has been taken so by it, authorities. It's and this so, small town and like the local kind of sheriff's department. Yeah, is local of, American PD. Kind of hopeless and yeah, don't exactly. really, they aren't really going anywhere with it. Yeah, so she decides to take action and she rents out uh, three billboards. Um, <laughs> right outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Like a small town <laughs> in uh, America. And um, yeah, so the, and the billboards say like, uh, raped while dying, still no arrests. How come Chief Willoughby? And Chief Willoughby is the chief of the local Played police by department. Woody Harrelson. Also fantastic. Also great. Um, yeah, so... Uh, and I guess that's the kind of start of the start of the film. The establishing yeah. bits are... Establishing her character, establishing the billboards and, and the police department. And so the film is sort of a lot about the small town politics surrounding yeah. her calling out the police. Yeah. And so it's... A lot of the film is... In the same way as in Bruges is like, re- like really what happens is like, oh, these people have conversations with each mm. other for two hours. Mm. I think this film is often the same thing. It's like, you know, yeah. she has... It's she, her having a conversation with the police about like with, with Chief Willie about like well that's not really fair is it and like conversations that happen between like the sheriff deputy kind of guy and mm. yeah yeah so the sheriff deputy um, Sam Rockwell is he's not the deputy maybe he's just a cop he's another yeah, yeah he's okay. a low level low level cop, cop. Yeah. so Sam Rockwell um, is like I guess for lack of a better term um, an antagonist in yeah this well he's film. he's not but, a very likable. No character yeah. on paper, like we were saying before. So, so I think the pretty... really interesting point of comparison between these two is you were saying um, Ray Fine's character is the one with like the strongest, most rigid set of moral principles. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that in this film, um, one of the most rigid moral characters is Woody Harrelson's character, yeah. who is generally, um, so that's Chief Willoughby, who is generally the most morally commendable he's, he's the most calm and sort of thought out well-meaning yeah. well-intentioned kind of character yeah in the whole exactly film. i mean obviously yeah. francis mcdormand's character has been wronged in a way yeah, yeah. but yeah. he sort of you know he sits down with her and says well look these are the steps i took to try and catch yeah. your daughter's killer and these and are the reasons why it can't I yeah can't he's kind of him. like it's out of my hands so i've done point. the best yeah. i can so uh, i guess what's interesting is so sam rockwell's character is Arguably the bad guy. He's and this I like think obnoxious, in... racist, yeah. loser kind of character who's not on. Like I said with in Bruges, on paper, not a very likable character. No, but somehow you saw, I find myself over the course of the film. I don't know about you. I found myself almost sympathizing with it. Oh, I sympathize like with really him. He's a victim his... of like a systemic upbringing. There's yeah. lots of um, yeah, America. Like you said, Southern American, like Missouri politics that get kind of, like, distilled into this guy. So, like, yeah. you know, big surprise, he's a white supremacist. Yeah. Um, but you see later, like, his mother is, like, this horrible matriarchal figure who raised him with a set of principles. And it's like, well, how... If you if that was most of your experience, like, like, how could you, you possibly yeah. have had anything different? But what I thought was a good 
point of comparison is that yeah. in um, Ray Fiennes is the bad dude for lack of a better <laughs> phrase in in even bad guy would have been a better phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I'm like, it's 2018, Matt. You can call men dudes. Ray Fine is the bad boy of the film. <laughs> hey, we established last week that was a good thing. Um, so uh, Ray Fine's is the bad guy, but he's the one with the rigid moral principles. Yeah. And then the other two are the good guys that have the that have to navigate a morally ambiguous world, yeah. right? Well, Whereas in Three Billboards, Woody Harrelson's character is a good guy who is also the most rigid in his moral principles, and then Sam Rockwell and uh, Mildred, uh, Francis McDormand's character, are at opposing ends of the kind of moral spectrum, yeah. but are the ones who have to navigate in the morally ambiguous world, yeah. right? So I think what's interesting is that um, he, he's kind of done a, a little switcheroo of who has to deal with the moral ambiguity of the world and who is the rigid uncompromising moral character. Sure. Right? Well, I think I think in a way, though, Sam Rockwell's character is kind of morally... Because Frances McDormand does all these terrible things, mm. but she's not very consistent in what she... in the right and wrong kind of thing. Um, but Sam Rockwell's yeah. character, for a tremendous part of the film, is just like uncompromisingly faithful to a fault to the mm. chief, to Chief Willoughby. Um and he's sort of uncompromising in his do you values think Chief in a lot of would, ways. Do you think Chief Willoughby would condone most of his actions? I don't so, think no, so. No, exactly. Uh, but so, so there's um. So he's got loyalty, but his actions don't reflect the moral code of exactly. Of and so that's so that's kind of the way I sort of viewed him as being uncompromising and very strict in his sort of moral compass. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell's character. In this oh, film. okay. So within the first twenty minutes, for example. So you think um, Willoughby and Rockwell oppose each other, but have the similar approach to. Like a similarly uncompromising. No, I don't know. See, I, th- I think Willoughby. Willoughby, I think, is shows a lot more human kindness. So, for example, Willoughby has to uh, interrogate Francis McDormand's character at some yeah, point yeah, during yeah. the film for something else she does, and he gets the other cop to leave the room so he can just sit down with her and be like, "Come on, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, what, what's up?" And like, you know, like you know, heart's a really heart, human what's talk. Going on? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Whereas I think there is no moment like that for Sam Rockwell's character. Yeah before a specific point in the film. Mm. Um, and so I think in that sense, the character isn't very likable for definitely the sort of first two thirds of the film for that mm. reason, because he doesn't display very much forethought. He's just constantly loyal to a fault. So Francis McDormand puts down the money to buy these billboards and Sam Rockwell's character immediately goes and like beats up the advertising guy. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. throws him out of a fucking window. Yeah. And he's like, take them down, take them down. Even though it's like, you know, it's you know, like free speech and like the, well, but I mean, the, you're right that he does those things, but the the motivation for those is very different, right? Because um, he does that as a reaction to loss, which is actually I mean, he does, more he, forgivable. He does it before than, the film, before no. okay, the timelines all mess up. Yeah, 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 but, yeah, no. yeah. Okay, I guess spoilers. A bit, a bit more of a okay. <laughs> yeah. Actually, actually, heavy spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Chief Willoughby is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and ends up dying like halfway through the film. Yeah. So the reason why Sam Rockwell's character acts that way towards the advertising guy is because from the very start, he's had a huge issue with these billboards because he feels like they're undermining the, I guess, I, I think he feels like they're undermining the entire process of the police department. He thinks they're kind of an unfair accusation. Exactly. Despite the fact that they are already a corrupt organization and yeah. that he is really the least <laughs> yeah, kind exactly. of the person that should least be working in a police department. Yeah. Which However, goes back to that moral ambiguity of like yeah, exactly. how can Sam Rockwell's character be saying, Oh, this is this is unfair when he is like a symbol almost of 
the worst part of that police department. And yeah, the most yeah, yeah. And, and really uh, uh, emblematic of the worst parts of the South, I think, at yeah. least in, in, in kind of um, that his approaches to racism, bigotry, yeah. whatever. Um, so what, what I guess is interesting is that in, in, in his worst moment where he throws an innocent man out of like a second story window as a reaction to the billboards, what he's actually doing is acting out at the loss of Woody Harrelson's character. Yeah. Um, which is almost kind of forgivable in a way. It's like, obviously that's not something that should be condoned and it's an irredeemable action that he is punished irredeemably for. Yeah. However, it is a, it is almost understandable that he's doing that as a response to like what is kind of like, I guess a father figure, but also like a moral compass for him. Well, yeah. And it comes down to that, it keeps coming back to this idea of characters that have a twisted under- understanding of morality. Yeah, and th- yeah, This yeah. idea of yeah. like, well, sure, I did this tr- this tremendously despicable thing, but it was for this arguably good reason. Well, <laughs> yeah, but forgivable. Not good, but I think forgivable. Yeah. And like Sam Rockwell's character is the one that has, um, that kind of turns over a, a leaf and changes his principles Whereas, so that's why I think it's interesting that you were saying that they both had rigid moral principles because I think Sam Rockwell's character is actually fairly fluid. It just takes a real big turn. I think the turning point that Sam Rockwell's character has is where he starts to become more likable. And when he sort of starts to sort of try and actively make good, make, make, make good for what he's done in the past. Yeah. And try and sort of help out Francis McDormand's yeah, character definitely. a bit is where um, he sort of starts to become likable, and you can sort mm. of paint the past at scenes you've seen in a better light. Yeah, I think so. Harrelson's character is kind of the one that stays the same the whole time. He's yeah. a good guy, but Sam Rockwell's character is is like the one that is kind of condemnable, yeah. but then also overturns. So I guess that's kind of what my point earlier is that that's in opposition to In Bruges, where. Um, Ray Fiennes' character is just the evil guy the whole time and he stays evil the whole time. Yeah. You know, even though he's kind of got the most consistency, his consistency is bad. So I guess it, it, it it's probably um, McDonough just kind of playing around with who occupies those roles of like, right, well, I want one person to be this kind of like unwavering, consistent person, but this time I'm not going to have that be the bad guy. That's going to be the good guy. It's funny that they're both cops and one of them is the good guy and one of them is the bad guy in the film. Yeah, no, it really is. And I guess, you know, that goes to show... And our main character is sort of neither the good guy or the bad guy. The main character is kind of like this sort of... She has the most ...gray line right down the middle. Well, she's not consistent though because she, she'll, she jumps to both sides. Like yeah, she's exactly. the one who I think she's the one who occupies the broadest moral segment. Yeah, you know, um, because like she firebombs a police station. Yeah. in anger, but she also calls up to make sure that no one's in the building. Yeah, before she does it, and the entire reason why she's doing that is to enact positive change because she doesn't want another teenager yeah. to get murdered. <laughs> exactly, it's like you know? she wants a more efficient legal process, and so she like yeah, and so she's like throwing Molotov cocktails yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, so I guess for me, and the reason why I feel like he's developed his style over time is because I think this is a much more nuanced, deep dive on that kind of like moral exploration that he does compared to in Bruges, which is very cartoonish. Well, I mean, I think there are elements of like surreal character betrayals in Three Billboards as well, because for example, you've got, um, (laughs) Francis McDormand's ex-husband who's dating this like 19 year old girl. 
Yeah, so and like then, also an ex-cop and a domestic abuser. I didn't see the ex-cop thing, but yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Sure. And she at one point he even says like ex-cop, and she's like ex-cop domestic abuser. Is there a difference? Oh yeah. So <laughs> she's like she she uses him to identify like some of the systemic yeah. issues that are in in policing. Yeah, and you get like um ca- uh, characters. Uh, yeah, so Sam Rockwell's character who is like cartoonishly stupid mm. um, <laughs> in fact I like the way that he was introduced as a character you get the um, he's driving past the billboards and I like that he's driving past the billboards the pacing of that he's driving past, so it, past them funny. backwards so Francis McDormand yeah. I don't know if he properly articulated it it's one sentence spread out over three billboards yep. and he drives past them and sees them in reverse order and he stops at every single one and asks the person hanging out what is this what the fuck so does this mean so there's two guys painting the last two billboards and so he stops at the first guy and he's like what the fuck is this and, he- and the guy's like he doesn't speak English. Yeah, yeah. And so then he sees the second one and it's the same thing. Yeah, it's like a sentence like, fragment. It's like, what like, is this? like 50 meters apart and he like gets back in his car, <laughs> starts it, drives over, so, parks yeah. it, stops the ignition, gets out. Fuck, it's funny. Yeah, and so that's like cartoonish levels of stupidity. Like there's another thing where like um, he asks some question about like, oh, where was this guy? And yeah. the police chief's like, has to guide him through like a very, very obvious set of clues that he just doesn't put together yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. So there are definitely elements of surreality or not seriality, but like, you know, unrealistic level characters that are yeah. sort of there to make a point. Yeah. Uh, something interesting, just harking back to that first scene of Sam yeah. Rockwell's, is that one thing that I feel I felt was fucking excellently done in Three Billboards that I don't really remember being done quite as well in, in Bruges sure. is the way that he immediately visually characterizes all of the characters in this film. So, like, one of the... So, in that billboard scene... Um, <laughs> in that billboards movie... Um, in, the, in, the, in the billboard scene, Sam Rockwell... Um, he's being frustrated because these guys that he's trying to get information out of are giving him fucking nothing. Yeah. But then one of the first things that he does is threaten and intimidate the black guy that's painting the billboard. Yeah. And the black guy is just clearly like, man, fuck off. Yeah. Um, so he like tries to throw his weight around, but what he's actually trying to do is he, he's just trying to get information. So if someone had just been like, oh, X, Y, Z, he probably wouldn't have had that bad response, but his like reaction to adversity is to try and use like intimidation and racism. And, about it, yeah. yeah. And I think earlier in the movie, I think it's the first bit sure. is where, um, Mildred Hayes. So the grieving mother. Yeah walks in to, to buy the billboards and she has this like whole dialogue where again, she's like really, she, it's hard to really describe why her character is so fucking likable, but she's, very she's so rough and, and, uh, and it's great. Um, so she like bullies this guy into selling her the billboard slots, but then, so she's kind of, you're a bit turned off cause she's so rough. She's very but stern. Then, she wears these mechanics overalls for like the whole, like, uh, yeah. And she's like coveralls for like, the whole movie. She's quite an androgynous looking actor. She's got yeah. a very like severe jawline and, and she looks very weathered. Yeah. Um, they did a really good job of choosing like a grieving mother. Like she's just, she's, yeah. it looks like she's tired, man, but she walks into this billboard office and she, she hires these billboards. It's clearly not easy, but then she sees this beetle on a windowsill. And, John, um, Paul, George, fucking <laughs> nice one. Um, so she sees a beetle on the windowsill, and it was interesting. She, so what she does is she flips it over and and kind of like so it's upside down and struggling, <laughs> and she flips it yeah. over and she's like, you know, there you go. She so she kind of like. It what it what it does is it really establishes that she is very empathetic. Yeah. She's pragmatic. She wants the best. 
but it's coming off the back of this really rough, unlikable characterization. So you get this complexity where it's like, okay, well, she's clearly got a good moral compass. And um, my partner who I was watching the film with, we talked about it afterwards. She thought she was going to crush the beetle. Yeah. And I thought she was going to kind of turn it over and, and that was going to be the way that it went. Yeah. So it was really cool that um, that moment was so able to go one way or the other because if she'd squashed the beetle, it would have been like, right, well, this person's cutthroat and brutal. But the fact that she turned it over was really effective in like kind of showing you the depth of characterization that it goes to. Yeah, yeah I just think the way that... The, the way that different characters are... Um, the way that, like that. The, the moral spectrum of these characters is introduced is really really effective really crisp and uh and one of the strongest parts of the film well they have uh, i mean (laughs) the one other memorable character introduction from these pair of films that i can remember is when you get introduced to harry's character the first time yeah when you see him see him for the first time because you hear on the phone a lot in in bruges i feel like none of the characters in any of these films have memorable enough names that anyone listening yeah so So, um ray finds his character in in bruges you hear him on the phone a lot the first time you actually see him is when he gets off the phone with someone and then like beats the shit out of his phone that's into the desk onto his desk for like 20 seconds yeah and um that's like a memorable scene as well Mm. it's Mm. like Mm. blind rage that he goes into yeah something i thought was really effectively done in both films was martin mcdonough's use of music in very opportune places okay so there were very i must say i really wasn't looking for that at all so right so there i don't remember some, anything about there it. were some very specific moments in three billboards where there is this sort of but he uses very unique folk music to highlight certain elements of the movie during points of like emotional tension okay. or like emotional high points so for example the very first time that francis is driving through town i think with her son or maybe not it plays this sort of country song and then again uh, right at the very end, there's this scene where she's sort of driving off into the distance and there's this emotional moment in the film and it mm. plays this country music as well. Um, it reminds me of in, in Bruges, during this is a spoiler for In Bruges, so seeing In Bruges, it's worth seeing. During Ken, so that's Brendan's character, or during his death, yep. he's, he gets shot in the, in the leg and has to crawl up these stairs to the top, to the top of this bell tower. It's agonizing. And he's going to throw himself off the bell tower so he hits the ground to warn his friend before the other guy gets down the stairs. Yep. Not important. But the whole way it's through that... It's actually like a really actually, fucking complicated setup. It's a complicated setup. It's really setup hard to, to explain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's this fucking... He's, he's about to kill himself to warn his friend. Yeah. And during this whole setup for that scene, it's playing this very emotional Gaelic folk song or like Irish folk song. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at no other point in the film does it play music like that at all. Mm. So it really kind of highlights it and yeah. draws attention to it. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Okay. Um, just in the way that... I mean, right at the very... The, the song that plays right at the very end of three billboards is also this beautiful like American country song yeah, yeah. and so it's music that is sort of tied to the characters in the I don't film. feel like I recognized any of the music in the in three billboards oh me neither so, but it's it, yeah. like but that's of, cool because it's tonally probably, it fit exactly yeah 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 one of the my favorite parts of of three billboards was um uh Woody Harrelson him reading the, the letter? letters to that was there so are a couple of letters beautiful. that he reads and all of them are um some of the best bits of cinema that like the one that he reads to narration his wife is to beautiful. be envied they're they're all i thought absolutely gorgeous but yeah, yeah i mean some of them are yeah so he he writes letters to people before he takes his own life and uh 
Yeah, he just it's well, it does such an inc- the writing does such an incredible job of being this man who's in his blood from that part of the world and was not yeah. highly educated and isn't particularly well articulate, but has these vast beautiful ideas about love and the way that things are in the world and has to what he has to do is he has to condense those down into very simple dialectics and the way that they do that is just amazing and and Harrelson's narration is to be commended because it's just got these just really from the heart feelings that are being conveyed in such funny emotional terms it's just really beautiful so the letter he writes to his wife is very romantic and sweet Mm. and the letter he writes to Francis's character is very funny and kind of a bit snarky Mm. and then the letter he writes to Sam Rockwell's character is very fatherly yeah and it, it reflects obviously the relationships that he had with all of those different characters yeah yeah interestingly really 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 I think this is one of the only times in memory that I in memory that I have (laughs) that um two character two actors from the same film have both been nominated for like the one so Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson were both nominated for best supporting supporting, actor wow okay and Sam Rockwell won but I, right. I, I don't remember um, that happening in recent in recent past for any other films. Sam Rockwell is good as fuck. He's one of my favorite actors. Sam He's Rockwell's so good. incredible, man. <laughs> I've so never good. seen. If you oh, we'll do it probably one time in this podcast because it's one of my favorite movies. But if you've Moon? never seen a movie called Moon, Moon's really just good. Moon, directed by David Bowie's son. Yeah, go and fucking watch that movie. Yeah. Sam Rockwell plays both main characters, and like, holy shit, that's a good film. It's also yeah. got Kevin Spacey in it, but. But Sam Rockwell is just incredible. It's like, if you've never... Oh, man, yeah. His emotional range is unbelievable. Oh, it's so Yeah, he, he's, he's such a good actor. I reckon he's one of the... Even though he's won an Oscar, I reckon he's one of the most <laughs> underrated actors. Because I would say... One of the most appropriately... He doesn't really do films that most people would see. He no, does I mean, these, like, ambiguous what, kind yeah. of indie pieces. One of my favorite indie, movies whatever, ever but. is a movie called The Way, Way Back. Which yeah, Which is like right. a coming-of-age kind of story. Yeah. And that he's also really good in that mm. as well. I he see plays him a completely as different character. He and Ethan Hawke are quite similar in my head. Yeah, where like they both, you know, like they're Ethan like Hawke indie uh, kind of from movies. Boyhood. Yeah, 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 he'll do. They'll do stuff that's real left field, um, yeah. and it feels like they're willing to kind of be those people that push the boundaries of what Hollywood's doing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, really, 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 really cool. Um, and very good in this. I think this is one of the best movies that came out last year. Yeah, um, it's I up don't there. remember what Best Picture was last year. But neither do I. It wasn't but, the Revenant, was it? That no, was twenty sixteen or some shit. Ago. But no, yeah. I think this was definitely uh, this was definitely nominated for best picture. Oh, was it Moonlight? No, but th- this was definitely up there. Well, there's no way to find and this out. No, <laughs> it's a pity that they ablate all records of the Oscars annually after that. Yeah, I, I've I've said that they should they should be some sort of internationally accessible down, yeah. database of film, but no, I guess we'll never know. Regrettably, there's not one one little thing that I thought was dubious of this film was that scene with the deer mm. which like a CG, a very clearly a CGI deer and throughout it's like the only use of CGI and, did you notice that? And in billboards yeah when she's like sitting she's sitting by the billboards in billboards, in billboards? <laughs> she's sitting by the bill, billboards and this like deer walks up to her I didn't think she that talks that was to the deer. CGI it, it's definitely CGI and I reckon I okay. know Oh, I don't know. I'm usually pretty fucking critical of that sort of stuff, so... Oh, clearly, clearly not. Could have been this section of the movie <laughs> that I was looking shit up on my phone for, but... Uh, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, have you got anything else on 
either of these films? No. I wish I had more intelligent stuff to say. <laughs> Not the end of that sentence. I wish you had more intelligence, but... <laughs> I wish I had more intelligent stuff to say about the the depiction of the sort of Renaissance art in in Bruges because I feel like that yeah. was a major theme that I haven't quite yeah. captured appropriately. But it definitely was a really nice use of that yep. in the film. The way that he looked at that this Hieronymus. <laughs> I didn't understand it, but I liked it a lot. <laughs> it's pretty. And I pretty, wish I got it more. It's a main theme through this podcast. <laughs> the the so Hieronymus Bosch's depiction of hell. And the way that comes back at the end, mm. where um, Colin Firth's character is being hauled away on a stretcher, and he has this sort of dreamlike hallucination, or you don't really know, and there's all these characters from the film that's being shot in Bruges yeah. that are sort of like moving past him in the town square that he's moving past that's sort of rolled through with fog. It's a very fairy tale, dreamlike ending to the film that I thought was really good and sort of wrap things up in a nice kind of ambiguous way that was suited to the rest of the film. Yeah. I reckon if we haven't... I reckon In Bruges is definitely worth seeing. If you haven't seen it at this point in the little potty here, it's definitely worth going and seeing. It's one of my favourite films that's come out in the last few years. Yeah, I enjoyed Three Billboards a, a lot more, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you remember if the... So is the um, triptych... In in Bruges, the Garden of Earthly Delights is that the name of the painting by Hieronymus Bosch? No, it's called the Final Judgment or something. Okay, because that one I was talking about earlier, that's in the Before the Flood by Leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. is also a triptych by Hieronymus Bosch. What's a but triptych? But this one's called it's a three part painting, right? By uh, the same guy. So it's it. Apparently, this guy's shtick is apocalyptic triptychs. <laughs> <They're>, um, <laughs> Get some fucking range, will you, man? Triptychs are just Renaissance, <laughs> Renaissance era cartoon strips. Yeah, <laughs> three panel cartoons. <laughs> it's like Garfield is a triptych for the orange cat. Age. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, oh. It's it's cool that you were describing a triptych painting to me, and it it twigged enough for me to think of the other work that I knew by Bosch. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty, pretty liberal use of the word "cool," but that's all right. Shut up. Um, <laughs> Well, no, yeah, it's interesting in Before the Flood because he uses it as a similar kind of like, um, yeah, leading up to because in in Garden of Earthly Delights it shows like, um, it shows the start of humans and then it shows like humans in their hedonism and their you know like um, revelry and yeah. then it shows the consequences of that which is hell. So I guess he kind of had some things to say about morality and human behavior. So I would say that you're right that there's actually a lot more shit to be excavated out of his use of um, medieval paintings in in Bruges. Yeah. So and if we're not the people to do it. Yeah, find another film podcast that has a bit of intelligent <laughs> yeah. discussion Why about that. Why don't you fuck because... off and find one of those medieval <laughs> painting film crossover podcasts, all right? There's plenty of them bouncing around. So if you want your... Fuck off to Hannah Gadsby podcast, whatever. <laughs> hey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you want anything to do with uh, oil paintings, get fucked. <laughs> do you want to... Transition into a bit of news. Yeah, we can we can do the beef bullet ins. <laughs> oh, all right, beef bullet. It's a beef bullet. We're going to be making all our own music for the rest of the entirety of this podcast, by the way. Um, okay, so uh, mostly headlines and in no particular order, as yep. is the custom. Yep. The, there's lots of shit coming out about the new Venom movie with Tom Hardy in yeah, it. Yeah, there's a cool poster um, that was announced for that. Yeah, there's a poster, there's a new trailer. I, I'm i not psyched, but it could be good. I don't know much about it. Who's directing? Is it, It's like a Spider-Man-y kind of thing, right? Isn't Venom like a Spider-Man antagonist? Well, I mean... 
Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but the last Spider-Man movie not was good. Spider-Man. Is, is Spider-Man going to be in it? So, my understanding of Venom is that it's going to be an, uh, an anti-hero film. Okay. So, I don't think it actually will have Spider-Man in it. I think Venom is the main character, not the antagonist. Right, okay. So, yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, which is kind of the way that it goes in the comics. Like, someone finds a meteorite and it's got some shit in it and it's just it happens in the Spider-Man universe but Venom has yeah. his own blah 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 blah. anyway so as much so, as I'm not super keen for another Marvel film unusually another Marvel film where you've got the hero and then just the villain that's just the opposite of the hero in every way yeah but the, in this one it can't <laughs> be because the opposite that... of that would be Spider-Man and I hope that Spider-Man actually I hope Spider-Man is the villain in this film but yeah. I doubt that he will be so I don't know what his he'll probably be taking on like mob bosses and shit well, it's like Black Panther where the villain in Black Panther was just yeah, an evil the, dude with the, another Black it, Panther in a mirror, yeah, exactly. Um, um, so, yep, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, all right. It's slated for release on October fifth in the UK. Okay, so good. We'll, we'll Great. Head off to the UK in October and see it, listeners. Yep, got to fly over there. It's a five thousand dollar movie <laughs> ticket. Stephen Moffat is adapting The Time Traveler's Wife for television, okay. so that'll be fucking awful and riddled with plot errors. <laughs> uh, fuck off, Stephen Moffat. <laughs> Nicole Kidman's playing a Fox News anchor. Uh, specifically, oh, like Foxy News anchor. Nice. All right, boy. Kachoo. <laughs> Look at you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing ridiculous things with your hands. Uh, so she's playing Gretchen Carlson, who I'm guessing if you're American means a lot more to you because we don't have a whole lot of Fox News over here. But there's a, a movie about Fox News coming out. It's going to be called Fair and Balanced. So I think that it will <laughs> <Is> be. That- <laughs> Is that really what it's called? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the guy that wrote, so Charles Randolph, who wrote The Big Short, which is an excellent film, wrote the script for this one. Right. So, Speaking of Fox News, uh, big news this week was that, or maybe it was last week, was that the Disney and Fox Studios merger finally went through. Oh, yeah. Disney has now spent $71.3 billion to buy out a whole bunch of major Fox assets. I've got a couple little quotes here about it because I thought it was interesting. So, together, Walt Disney Studios, including Lucasfilm, Marvel Studios, and Pixar Animation, amongst others, now owns Fox Entertainment Group, which includes 20th Century Fox, Fox Searchlight Pictures, Fox 2000, amongst others. It's now going to make up approximately 27% of the entire film industry. Some guy did, like, a blog where they they went back and... uh, took together like all the major studios average market shares going back to 1995 and the 27% is like 27% of all the market share in the last 20 Jesus years or so Christ. yeah um, got more little little fun facts for you, boy. According to the headline I saw on Reddit, Disney now owns 60% of the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time uh, 53% of the top 15 and 48% of the top 25 films of all time well it makes sense that they do because they have 60% of money yeah, no, it's ridiculous. So we can go through the top ten if you'd like, and just which ones Disney owns. Avatar is. Should we just launch ourselves <laughs> into the sun? That... Do we want? Do you want to do we're that instead of reading this list? We're halfway I think there that's now, a much boy, better action. Better pull yeah. the handbrake. Yeah, Avatar is Disney. Titanic isn't. Sure. Star Wars: The Force Awakens is Disney. As is the Avengers: Infinity War. Uh, Jurassic World is not. Marvel's The Avengers is the Age of Ultron. Uh, Furious Seven isn't. Black Panther is, you've got Beauty and the Beast, which is, Iron Man 3 is, Civil War is. Uh, and every single dip- one that isn't, you can also add yet to the end yeah, of it, and exactly. that's accurate. It's fucking terrifying, oh man. Oh, my God. And it, 
Yeah, like, and it goes because someone it's was just going to be Disney's just going to be the movie company. Yeah. Well, so I was reading an article because if you go back and you look at all the Fox Searchlight kind of films and all the films that Fox cranks out, mm. there's a lot of fantastic films yeah. that often turn out to be kind of Oscar-y kind of films, and they're often a bit risky, or if not risky, they're interesting little if dramatic. Not risky, risque. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I can't find the article I was looking at before. But they were talking about how like it's a lot of Oscar baity kind of films right. that take an interesting. Was Twelve look. Years a Slave Fox Searchlight? I, I wouldn't know, but it, it, they, they, I mean, I think one. I think these films we might have looked at. Yeah, today that's might fucking be Fox. right. Twelve Years a Slave was Oscar bait. I think that Three Billboards might be a Fox film, but like. The point yeah, is that, like, be. in the same way as you look at Disney films, and they don't necessarily always take adventurous steps. It's pretty mm. sort of pretty safe, mainstream money-making kind of films. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the Fox Searchlight films were interesting artistic choices. It, Three Billboards was Fox Searchlight, right? So there yeah. you go. Um, and you can compare that to fucking The Avengers, and get a bit of comparison. God, dude. Uh, Incredibles two. I'm just an accelerationist. Like, if we if this is what we're gonna do, everyone just. We should just stop movies. Yeah, no. We should just stop that. doing movies. <laughs> movies should just die. Films should be a lost art, uh, like writing and reading books and uh, everything. Yeah. Once again, I think we should just yeah. drive it into the sun. <laughs> drive it all into the sun. Incredibles 2 has hit a billion dollars at the box office faster than any animated film in history. Yep. It made a billion dollars in 47 days. That's a cool number. <laughs> That's a... 47 days for a sweet bill. Isn't that unbelievable? That's fucking insane. Yeah. Um, here's my last... Fa- well, I got the last bit of news that I've got here. I don't know where you got there. Here's my, my favourite bit. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes went through sort of in celebration of this new uh, Mission Impossible film that's coming out. And they went through and calculated all the times that Tom Cruise is running in all of his films. And I think they sort of assumed that he, you know, he takes him this much, this, this many minutes to run a mile and then counted the number of steps he takes in all his films yep. and worked out that when Tom Cruise is running, the movie makes more money and is more critically acclaimed. <laughs> <laughs> the data shows that movies featuring Tom Cruise running more than 1,000 feet, which is 300 meters, have a higher Rotten Tomatoes score <laughs> and than the Thanks movies in which he runs less than that or not at all. And the same movies make more money at the box office with an average inflated international gross of $500 million. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Once again, oh. cool. And then it's got a top 10 list of uh, films in which Tom Cruise has run the most, which I won't put you through. But <laughs> that is something that really never needed to happen, but I am going to look at the list after Human resources have been dedicated Where does to War that? of the Worlds? Does War of the Worlds coming in? The 2005 Spielberg version? Is that on that list? I mean, probably, yeah. I haven't looked. I haven't. Looked, I don't have the list open. Sorry, oh. boy. Why the fuck are you baiting it then? <laughs> it's gonna, oh, you got me interested, you it's gonna, dick. It's gonna drive I was so click- committed to not being interested, and then I was like, <laughs> actually, <laughs> what about this? going to drive click stuff. Facebook. You know what? I might. I, I won't. But I might post it to our Facebook page. So uh, go like us maybe, on Facebook. Maybe. <laughs> um. All right. Uh, a couple more from my end. So yeah. there was a whole big shit about. Um, so some of you might remember Henry Cavill. He's the one who plays the modern Superman. Yeah. Um, his upper lip was CGI'd <laughs> for the last Superman movie. Right. So here's and the it back- was a fucking train wreck. So here's the backstory to this. Henry Cavill was Superman in the. Oh, I was going to say Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Henry, oh, Henry that Cavill- mustache isn't going to wash with the test audiences. <laughs> I'm glad we dodged that bullet then. Sorry. <laughs> Henry Cavill was play, played Superman in that Justice League film. And then immediately after yeah. that, he had to go and shoot 
Im- Mission Impossible, for which he grew a mustache. Yep. After he grew the mustache. That's Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. The most recent. The most recent. After he grew this mustache and they started shooting Mission Impossible, Justice League decided they wanted to do some reshoots, for which they would need to shave the mustache. And it was but this, they were still midway through filming Mission Impossible. In which so his character does have a mustache. And so it was this big argument between the two studios as to whether Henry Cavill should shave his moustache and they CG a moustache on dude's mustache. for Mission Impossible or whether he keeps the moustache and they CG it off. He's got to shave the moustache. you got to CGI it on. Apparently they... S- no, don't let him shave the moustache. You CGI it off. You CGI the moustache off. Oh, well, you're, you're, you're going to CGI the moustache on? It's going to cost us $300 million. You're going to CGI the moustache on? No, CGI the moustache off. Just the most ridiculous choice for both parties. Because, if, I mean... If Henry Cavill's upper lip isn't nude in two weeks, they're going to sue. Because, I mean... The curious case of his ben- upper fucking lip. The curious case of Benjamin Button showed that you can CGI the fuck out of a character and they look totally believable. Yeah, and they'll look like you a can, raisin scrotum can, either way. You can add wrinkles and add hair and all this shit to a character oh, and it's God. totally fine. If you fucking try and CGI off a mustache, apparently it looked ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, so- oh, it was. It's got to talk and stuff. Like it looks yeah. fucking terrible. <laughs> it's like twice as long as it should be. Like it, it look. It barely looks like Henry Cavill. It barely looks human. <laughs> so- it's the Best shit. So and I new- fucking love that DC lost out. <laughs> I love that more than anything. It's like, wow, Superman looks a bit fucked. You're like, right. <laughs> Logically speaking, what's the most rational way of solving this problem we have? And they went the opposite. We're going to clone Henry Cavill. <laughs> one of them's going to have a mustache. One of them's going to be the mustacheless clone of Henry Cavill. <laughs> How much is it going to cost? $800 million. <laughs> And 40 years. <laughs> so, so anyway, there, new development so in this story? development is that the Mission Impossible Fallout director originally agreed to have him shave his moustache for the Justice League and then the studio didn't back him. <laughs> and they doubled down and said he, he had to keep the moustache. And folks, I'm looking at the Empire Online news article for this. This is a meaty article. So if Fuck. you want some some seriously fucking in-depth reading on Henry Cavill's <laughs> facial hair. Also, how important could a mustache online. possibly oh be to God. a character that they're like, no, we're going to fight tooth and nail to keep this mustache. W- like, surely, Here's what they even if someone's what like, I'll done. give you a million dollars to just make the character not have a yeah, mustache, no. that'd be fine. Halfway you know? through the film, he should be in some horrific explosion, have... Super, super messed up facial burns, and for the rest of the hit the movie, he's a cartoon man with like one of those bandages that goes around everything on his head, so you can't see his face or mouth or anything. That's what should have happened, and they should have done that in Superman as well. That's my oh. solution. To that. Um, oh, okay. So this isn't really news. I just pulled it up because I'm super interested in this. There's an animated Spider-Man film coming out called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, and it looks fucking cool. Yeah, it's, is that the one that's where there's the one like? Where there's, it's also, a black teenager. We might have mentioned it before. Superman. There's all these like alternate Spider-Man. reality, alternate reality Spider Mans that all come together, and so yeah. Like, but the I protagonist Nicholas Cage, one of them, maybe. I remember there's about six different people playing Spider Man in this film. It sounds fucking loot. It sounds fucking insane. We might have done yeah. a lot of previous episodes. Yeah. Um. So that's coming out uh, 14th of December. So wow. I'm actually more excited for that than I am for any other Marvel related thing that's been out in like the past five years. I think that's fucking cool. <laughs> in past Beef Bulletin news, they've released the first set photo of the new Sonic movie. Oh you know- god! And it's a it's the weirdest shit. It's an actual billboard 
that has like Green Hill Zone on it, which this is if you don't know Sonic which shit, this I is going to make absolutely no sense to you. <laughs> but Green Hill Zone is level one one from the first Sonic right. game ever, yeah. And it's the music that's like it was the weirdest fucking thing <laughs> seeing a real life billboard oh, wow. that says Green Hill Zone on it. It is if the whole so movie fucking is just weird. a dude in a rubber Sonic suit running through Green Hills for two this hours. This is the most excited it. I have <laughs> ever been for a movie. Any movie. This The live action Sonic film is the most excited I've ever been for a movie. It is gonna be it's gonna be the best or worst thing that's ever happened in human art. Holy shit. Alright. Uh Moonlight's Barry Jenkins has offered the first look into his next piece. Uh, that's the, the Barry Jenkins who directed Moonlight, that movie yeah. we were talking about earlier. Um, his next uh, film is called If Beale Street Could Talk, and it looks like it's going to be another kind of like slice of life analysis of um, black American culture. Okay. Moonlight was absolutely fantastic. If you haven't seen it, go fix that. Came out several years ago. So I'm extremely... <laughs> and uh, Definitely didn't was, win Best Picture. was critically it. acclaimed. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, uh, fantastic. I'm very keen for that. So I think that'll be really, 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 really cool. Yeah. Um, it is apparently being released 30th of November. So it sounds like there's some good shit coming up. Actually. Good shit coming up. No, it's, uh, yeah. We're almost back at Oscar season again. Yeah, yeah so exactly. Um, so there's an... So I'm about to get pretty busy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andy Circus. I think, did I bring this up last time? Um, Andy Circus is directing uh, a Netflix series of George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yeah, I saw that. No, yeah. we didn't bring it up, but I definitely... Okay, so that should be interesting. That's something I read. Um, oh, and the only other thing that I wanted to bring up. So there's... Uh, oh, actually, the, okay. Three more things. Um, if you're it's a bumper for, segment of Big Bulletin for our soundtrack fans out there, uh, Johan Johansson, um, who did the Arrival soundtrack and was just an absolutely brilliant man, he yeah. passed away uh, earlier this year. Um, his last work, which is a posthumous soundtrack, is going to be released. It's on uh, Nicolas Cage film thriller. Uh, called Mandy, so it's a horror movie soundtrack. So that should Which be means really that no one will have heard the soundtrack. Well, fuck yeah, it's going to be an interesting <laughs> one. Anyway, um, but he's great, so I'm sure it'll be excellent. Just a real tragedy. Yeah. Apparently, Arnold Schwarzenegger's filming a new Terminator film. Fantastic. So good, great. I mean, that's true for the until he dies, right? Yeah. He's just constantly going to be in a state of filming no, a yeah. new Terminator <laughs> film. Like so um, he must just love. He must just love doing the movies. Yeah, I think it's because... gonna. It's like it's gonna be like Vin Diesel filming Chronicles yeah. of Riddick. Like he's just he ran for governor to fund the new Terminator movie. <laughs> well, I think it's different because like there are some, you know I think Vin Diesel's one of those actors that doesn't age. Um, like what was the fucking Star Trek uh, bald headed fucking actor guy who doesn't age? There's a couple actors who don't show their age. And they can be in movies for decades. And you're like, you know that guy's 70? You're like, oh, wow, you look so young. Arnold Schwarzenegger looks like a prune. He definitely has (laughs) aged. He aged as fuck. And so it's like, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger's been in films for like 40 years? And you're like, yeah, look at the guy. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, So the last thing I had was um, that there's a new Predator movie coming out. And it looks real interesting yeah. I think so I'm tentatively hopeful for this because I watched the last Predator film I didn't watch any of the AVP ones or yeah. any of those fucking ones I didn't even watch the second yeah, one yeah. but I watched the first Predator movie and I thought it was pretty good Yeah, um, it's very of its time but really yeah. good this new one is coming out uh, 14th of September and I think the general gist of the story is that there's a new super breed of super predators that super kill them. <laughs> and it's going to be a war between the super predators and the old predators. Like the poster oh. that I'm looking at at the moment is like uh, what is clearly an alien's hand or a, a predator, a, a super predator's hand. No, not not that. Oh. That's why I had to correct myself. <laughs> it's not an alien. It's not an alien. It's, it's, it's an alien. A, 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 
A lady alien. <laughs> no, it's a predator's hand um, holding the old predator's head. Right. So um, it's going to be like a war between those two things. I don't know. But they've they've really heavily uh, gone back to the old art style of like that thermal vision. If you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, um, yeah, the yeah so that should be kind of interesting. I'm actually quietly optimistic about that. <laughs> right. Um, I think so, yeah. Well, there you go. That's a bit better news for you to, bumper segment. to round out the episode. And I think that brings us to the end of Beef Station mm. for another week. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this first listener request segment. That was for Callum and Hammy once again. So now, would you you guys shut up? (laughs) We got your faxes. Jesus. Get it. Um, (laughs) No. uh, If you... We asked and you answered and you answered and you answered and you answered. (laughs) Jesus. If you have any other ideas for us, you're welcome to jump on our Facebook page. uh, Facebook.com slash Beefstation Pod. We actually got loads of feedback, so we've probably got a a few. We got loads now. Yeah. Yeah. That was facebook.com slash beefstationpod. That's correct. The email address is beefstationpod at gmail.com. How's that for consistency? How's that? Exactly. We, who, who would have thought that was available? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Um, I think we're still not sure how we're going to jam in another episode for next week. So we might see you next week. We might see you the week after. Yeah, see I'm how going we go. to Melbourne for 10 days. So we'll, we'll, we'll figure that one out. Might be a bit of a break. But even, in any case, we'll see you next time. Yeah. I'm Oscar. Andrew. Have a good week. Virgil Kane is my name And I drove on the Danville train Till so much cavalry came And tore up the tracks again In the winter of 65 We were hungry, just barely alive I took the train to Richmond that fell It was a time I remember oh so Bells of